So I'm delighted um, to begin with our two keynote speakers and invite them both to come up and uh, just sit at the front and I'll, I'll, I'll start introducing. Um, so we have Richard Dennis and Jane Gleason-White. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard and Jane. Richard, who will speak first, is the Chief Economist and former Executive Director of the Australia Institute. Um, he's a prominent Australian economist, author and public co policy commentator, uh, formerly Associate Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I love this description of him <coughs> in the newspaper. As a constant thorn in the side of politicians on both sides due to his habit of skewering dodgy economic justification for policy. <coughs> I'm glad I'm not talking. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. I didn't mean to take your breath away. Um, <laughs> um, look, uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me along today and thank you all for, for coming to talk about uh, what is uh, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest questions that, uh, that, that citizens uh, in, in any country rich enough, uh, as, as, as rich as Australia, uh, there is kind of no bigger question for a country, a, a people in a country as fortunate as us. Um, let me just start by saying uh, that I am, well, very appreciative of the organisers for putting on such an event. I 100% uh, am uh, interested in and committed to uh, trying to build a, a new economy. Um, so before I move on to uh, some potentially uh, challenging assertions about what we need to do to achieve that, uh, maybe not, maybe they'll be uncontroversial, I just want to start with a little bit of historical perspective because uh, the biggest mistake we can make is thinking that we don't, uh, that we don't come from a long tradition of not just uh, wanting something different and diagnosing, uh, diagnosing existing problems, but I hate to say it, failing to change them. So let me start with a 50-year-old quote that you might be familiar with by former US President John F. Kennedy. Gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It's quite a long quote. It goes on to say that economic growth, in short, uh, measures, uh, sorry, it measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. 50 years old, former US president JFK. 80 years ago, Dwight D. Eisenhower said, Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. It is not a new idea to suggest that how we organise ourselves, the things we make more of, the things we say we can't afford, it is not a new idea to perhaps say, maybe we've got the balance wrong. It is not a new idea in a rich country like post-World War II US to say, let's not get carried away thinking that GDP is, is the thing that we should focus on. It is not a new idea. But let's be clear, in the last 50 years, our elected representatives have put more emphasis, more emphasis into pursuing things like GDP than someone like JFK or certainly Eisenhower could. To be clear, we didn't even know what GDP was before World War II. It's hard to target an indicator that wasn't invented yet. And we managed to actually organise rich countries for hundreds of years without the data that we call GDP. So my big picture plea to you at the beginning is to understand that the challenge we face is a huge one 
and a very important one, but it is not a new one. And if we're to understand how to proceed, we have to understand why and where others have failed, because failed, they catastrophically have. Now, I'm an economist, apologies. Um, I'm from Canberra, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, and I've been teaching economics for more than 20 years. Now, I saw Frank Stillwell walk in at the back, my PhD supervisor. I'm not the only economist in the room. Me and Frank, we're gonna fight you to the death on this. The first thing, the first thing the kiddies are taught in first year economics, put up your hand if you've studied any economics at uni. Good on you. Remember opportunity cost? Opportunity cost. Right, my favourite diagram, isn't that a weird way to start a story? My favourite diagram, the production possibility frontier curve does not mention money. Does not mention money. The first lesson in economics does not mention money, doesn't mention growth. It says every decision we make has a trade-off. Every time we choose to come here, we choose to not go somewhere else. Every time we decide to dig up agricultural land and turn it into a mine, there's a trade-off. It is not true, it is not true to say that economics is all about money, let's talk about non-money things and then we're talking about not economics. Economics is about the hard choices that we face, the trade-offs that we face, and there is nothing in orthodox economics that says we should pursue GDP as the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying there aren't idiot economists that go out in public and make such statements. I'm not saying there aren't idiot non-economists that go out and make such statements. And there is lots that's wrong with orthodox economics, don't get me started. But in 20 minutes, let me just assert and mean it that our problem is not just with economics. In fact, I would suggest our problem is with politics, not with economics. I think economics is a wonderful, pow wonderfully powerful tool that powerful people use to conceal their agenda. There is a difference between saying that economics is used by powerful people to do terrible things and powerful people did terrible things because economics made them do it. Okay? We didn't. <laughs> they wanted to do it. And to attack just the economics, I would suggest, is, is a political and a strategic failure. So to talk about the new economy, we're living in one. The economy today we have is brand new. 50 years ago, it was inconceivable. Put up your hand if you had a mobile phone that could access the internet 15 years ago. Oh good, no liars in the room. Brand, oh, the one hand shot up. <laughs> in 1901, 30% of Australians worked in agriculture. 30%, one in 3% of Australians nearly worked in agriculture. Today it's closer to 3%. Our economy has changed fundamentally in the last 116 years. Be clear, it will change again fundamentally in the next 100 years. Change is inevitable. We're arguing about the direction of that change and the pace of that change. We will be building a new economy. We are in the process of building a new economy. As the saying goes, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. The things, the new economy we want to build will, ironically or logically, depending on your perspective, you know what will build the new economy? The old economy. How else could you build it? The capital that exists today, the workers that exist today will combine to build new stuff. You couldn't build new stuff without the workers and the capital that existed today. 
again, the political argument is not, do we build a new economy? Lock it in, Eddie, we're getting one of those. We're arguing about which new economy we might get. We're arguing about what our transport, energy, health, education and care sectors look like in 20, 30, 50 years, and I guarantee you this, the one thing they won't look like is what they look like today. We'll be getting a new economy. We will be. We just might be getting a worse one. We might be getting a great one. That is up for grabs. Now, usually I'm a bit of an optimist, but unfortunately, some of the biggest problems we face have got external time constraints. We will be building a new energy system. There's no doubt about that. Unfortunately, the reality of climate science is we're doing it under time pressure. Like my talk today, it has to all be mashed in pretty quickly. So will we transition to a low carbon economy? Yep. Will we be burning coal to make electricity in 200 years time? No. Will we transition fast enough to give most of what we think of as the world a chance of avoiding the worst consequences of dangerous climate change? Not sure. The transition's gonna happen. We're having a fight about the timing. Now, you'll often hear optimistic stuff along the lines of, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. True, but there weren't multinational powerful stone mining companies. <laughs> All right? The technology for the change is well and truly amongst us. How quickly we move from technology A to technology B, how quickly we achieve that transition is, according to the scientists who I take seriously, a, it is emergency uh, level in terms of the pace of the transition that we need. So the problem is not the economics, the problem is not the science, the problem is the politics of driving rapid change in an environment where there are people with a lot of money to lose associated with the rapid change. Yes, there's a lot of money to be made in that same rapid change, but history and politics and Machiavelli tell us that unfortunately incumbents with something to lose typically fight harder than new entrants with something to gain. How we overcome Machiavelli's 500-year-old observation is a question that we need to address because, again, JFK and even Eisenhower before him saw that simply saying, let's make more stuff, let's grow the economy, is not in and of itself going to make us happy. In fact, some forms of growth, according to Eisenhower at least, growth in military spending was in and of itself a theft from the poor. Now, let's turn back to kind of one of the ultimate sort of sacred cows uh, of what often events like this revolve around, and that is that, you know, GDP, I've already criticised it, simplistic indicator, tick, I agree with you, and our obsession with GDP means that we're going uh, to ruin the environment. Maybe, you're starting to lose me there, because we tell ourselves you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, yep, you got me back again, therefore we need GDP to not grow. No, nah, you lost me. You know what would happen if we massively invested in renewable energy and massively invested in public transport and massively transferred wealth from the richest to the caring sector? Do you know what would happen? 
Do you know what would grow? GDP would go through the epping roof. Be clear on that. If we massively invested in renewable energy technology, if we massively invested in public transport, and if we redistributed income from rich people that don't know what to do with it to poor people who needed it, or God forbid took some of it in tax and spent it on health and education, we would accidentally cause the biggest boom in GDP since World War II. But we hate GDP growth, yeah? GDP growth is unsustainable. No, dumb growth is unsustainable. We need to, yes, we need to tell ourselves a big picture story about where we want to get to, but we, be clear about this, will not be at this meeting or any other planning what 2050 looks like. We won't be planning what 2100 looks like. If we had this meeting 20 years ago, by the way, some of us were at it, we didn't anticipate smartphones. Okay, we didn't. That's on us. We were idiots. Didn't see it coming. Well, we're not going to see a whole bunch of things that are going to happen in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. We are not going to plan the future. But what we can do is say very, very clearly what our values are, what our priorities are, here's the easy bit or the hard bit, what we want more of and what we want less of. And wanting more of some things and wanting less of other things gives us a very powerful way to integrate tactics and strategy. Our strategy, a long-term goal to do less of the bad things and more of the good things, sign me up for it. But you don't get to change the future by your long-term plan. You get to change the future by the fights you win day in and day out. It is a game of inches. It is not a game of grand plans because there is no lever that you get to pull to implement your grand plan. But there is a lever that you get to pull that says, build more coal mines. Or you can push that lever and say, no new coal mines. That's a fight you can win. That's a fight you can influence. You can pull a lever called invest more money in renewable energy. Or you can push it back and say, let's get rid of the renewable energy target. There are a million choices that we as individuals or us collectively not only can make, but have to make, will make. And every one of them has an opportunity cost. And every time we lose a fight about a coal mine going ahead, we just lost a fight about 100% renewables. You can't have a transition to a low-carbon economy when you're still building new coal mines. <laughs> Let's be clear, there's no transition. Are you building new coal mines? Yes. Are you transitioning? No. <laughs> right? You start a transition by stopping doing something and starting doing something new. You can't separate. You can't say, I want more money for health and more money for education and more money to address Indigenous disadvantage in the Northern Territory, you can't say that and be taken seriously if you won't fight to say that other companies have to pay more tax, that rich people have to pay more tax. You can't, I hate to sell you, take out the fun stuff and the good stuff and the positive stuff and just keep it fucking positive all the time <laughs> because you can't change the world 
in your way if you're not stopping other people changing the world in their way. You can't just do the good stuff. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person sitting next to you, all right? <laughs> I know you're with me, right? It's the other person that I'm worried about. I'm not saying that it's either or. I'm saying it has to be both because we're not the only people sitting in a room planning the future. There are other people sitting in other rooms planning a future, right? And they want a different one to us. And if their future is to solve global poverty through coal mining, not kidding, <laughs> that meeting is happening. In fact, let's be clear, they're winning, right? They're winning because Australia has agreed to tackle climate change, Australia's agreed to play its fair share, and Australia thinks that its fair contribution to tackling climate change is to build the world's largest coal mine in the Adani Carmichael mine. Now, that works in Australian political debate. That's how far away from winning we are. That's how far away we're winning, from winning we are. And bizarrely or ironically or hilariously, there's a whole bunch of lefties now saying, we don't have to worry about that. The global coal market will take care of it for us. Oh, good. Market's fixing our problems. I've heard that one before. So I've had my five-minute warning. I don't use PowerPoint. I think power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. <laughs> but let me just end uh, with a quote from Sun Tzu, the Chinese uh, military strategist. Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the sound before defeat. It's not either or. You need both. It's not do we think big and blue sky and ignore the day-to-day -day, or do we go and fight against bad things that will last for 50 years. It's not either or. It's not is strategy more important than tactics. It's not is being long-term more effective than focusing on the here and now. It's both. And Sun Tzu told us that a thousand years ago which kind of makes JFK seem like a more recent bit of advice. So just to wrap up, our new economy, we're in the middle of building one. And sure, we need some new stuff. And sure, we need some new technology. And sure, we need some new ideas. But the number of people who said to me during the GFC, if only there was a way to like not have to rely on the big banks, I'd be like, you mean like credit unions? I mean, no, different, you know, like if we all owned it. Like, you mean like credit unions? <laughs> yeah, don't want to talk about that anymore. We don't have to invent brand new things to solve old problems. New things are great, sign me up. But there's plenty of old things that work a treat. It is not obvious that we will stay on the trajectory we're on. It is also not obvious that we will be the ones that shape it. So do we need a new economy? Yes. Are the economic arguments used to justify the status quo complete crap? Of course they are. All right? my, my latest book is called Econobabble, all right? and it's designed for non-economists. So let me end with my opening statement in that book. Economics is like a tire lever, a useful tool that can solve a problem or a heavy object to hit someone over the head with. It's not economics that's ruining the world. 
sure some economists are involved. It's not the toolbox of opportunity cost. Sure, it's not big enough to cope with all of the problems we've got. But if we think it's economics that make politicians go and deliver for powerful people and not deliver for powerless people, it's a bit weird that a bunch of lefties might have lost track of the role of power. Economists aren't the powerful people shaping the world. We're the patsies. <laughs> We're the veil behind which the obscene is concealed. So please talk about planning a new world, but don't forget to fight for the old one that's going to build it for you. Thank you very much.